Okay, well, um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Per Engstrom, Senior Lecturer in Human Rights here at the Institute, and it's a great pleasure to welcome back, I have to say, uh, Anthony Pereira from uh, King's College Brazil Institute. Uh, and uh, Anthony, I'm sure you, you, you know much of his work, but he's going to um, talk us through some parts of a, an ongoing research project uh, that is developing on thinking about state formation in Brazil and thinking about the various manifestations of violence, uh, as you evocatively kind of put it in your title for this talk, and, and the Brazilian uh, state. So, um, Anthony, I'm handed over to you. So, uh, an initial um, 40 minutes or so of discussion, um, and then we open up for. Um, uh, questions and, 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 and comments. So thank you once again, I think, for taking the time on your sabbatical uh, to join us here at the Institute. Well, thanks, Par. I want to thank everyone here also for showing up on a night where there's disruption in terms of public transportation. I'm not sure yet how I'm going to get home, and maybe some of you don't either, but you've, you've come. So I, I really appreciate that. And this is a part of a long-delayed project in which I... Um, just ask questions about uh, the applicability of some of this literature on state formation to Brazil. And I think being a Brazilianist in the literature on state formation is a bit like being a, a vegan invited to a churrascaria. Um, a lot of the dishes were actually made for you. They're, they're describing other states. They're describing Western European states, the U.S., Hispanic American states. And occasionally you get a little morsel, a little tidbit, a little reference to Brazil. But you have to do a lot of digging. You have to do a lot of teasing out. Uh, to make the literature apply to the Brazilian case. So that's what I've been trying to do. So it's sort of a theoretical exercise of clearing the underbrush, if you like. So I started with a question that I hope some of you find relevant. Um, the capacity of the Brazilian state since 1930, I think, uh, and I'm basing this partly on Lawrence Whitehead's review in the Cambridge history, um, it's, 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 improved, it's, it's increased a lot. So if you look at the ability of the Brazilian state to manage the economy, to extract resources, um, to also, if you look at the constitutional elements of the state, to enforce the constitution, if you look at social area, the, social, the extent of social programs, there's many, many ways in which you can say state capacity since 1930 has increased. And there's lots of different measures for this. Uh, and I won't go into all those, but um, I think there's a consensus that this has happened. But um, uh, let's see. But the state seems weak when it comes to the basic provision of order and the establishment of a near monopoly of legitimate coercion. And I think we were reminded of this last week. Geraldo and I were talking about the, the prison massacre in Manaus and the, the, the fact that um, many, many Brazilian prisons um, you know, are run by organized criminal groups and the state is absent. The state is absent there. The state is absent in peripheral areas, frontier areas. The state is absent in many poor neighborhoods and cities. Um, there's this striking dichotomy in the Brazilian state with high capacity in many areas. It's clear historical evidence of enhanced capacity in many areas. And yet, you've got this basic question of order and coercion um, where the state uh, either doesn't have a presence or colludes with non-state armed actors. To the extent that Daniel, uh, Graham Daniel Willis at Cambridge political scientist talks about dual sovereignty. So the Brazilian state sharing sovereignty with criminal uh, uh, gangs like the PCC. And so 
the question that comes to mind is why? Why this dichotomy? And uh, a lot of the state literature, state formation literature, isn't helpful because it's quite binary. So a lot of the works that you find uh, about Latin American state strength and state capacity tends to want to say either the state is strong, it's had a pr project of state building that's successful, or it's not, or it's weak. And so disaggregating the state uh, is necessary to answer this question, and it's not done as much as one might think should be, uh, would be the case. So what I'm going to try to do is talk a bit about the literature on state formation and what I think might be helpful. Um, then talk a little bit about the so-called bellicist perspective, the war-making perspective, which comes out of the study of Europe, and try to argue that um, what I call a, a sort of semi-bellicist perspective. Not that that perspective is um, completely useless or completely right, um, but there are elements of it that help explain the Brazilian case. Um, and I think the assumption I'm making here, I think that this exercise only makes sense if you accept my assumption that, the, that at the, 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 the relatively low capacity of the Brazilian state in the enforcement of order and in the monopoly of coercion um, is a long-standing pattern. It's not new. It takes new forms, such as what we saw in Manaus last week in terms of the prison massacre. But it's something that's been commented on historically for, for many, many years. So if you go back to the 19th century, you look at the, uh, the private uh, application of coercion on slave plantations uh, and the well, relatively weak central state in the 19th century, that there seems to be continuity here. If you don't accept that assumption, then it makes more sense to look for the answer in contemporary events. Um, so that's just kind of a, uh, a sort of warning, I suppose, of where my assumptions are leading me. Um, as I said, a lot of the literature on uh, state formation uh, that applies to Latin America is on... Uh, Hispanic America, um, but we can we can take some uh, I think general clues from the literature um, to come up with a toolkit um, for applying to the Brazilian case. So uh, I won't go into the definitions. I've got definitions in the paper which I'm happy to share with you on the state and coercion and so on. Um, but <coughs> I think it's important that. In Charles Tilley's seminal 1975 book on Western European state formation, um, I saw an interview with him much later, near the end of his life, where he said, I wish we hadn't used the word state, forma the word state formation because it sounds so teleological. And we started getting studies saying the failure of state formation in country X. And he said, that's not what I intended at all. I intended it as a neutral uh, descriptor of, of change, processes of change. So I think that's one thing to say, is that we don't necessarily want to use it teleologically. In fact, the gist of Tilly's whole project in 1975 was to refute the modernization school's co concept that there was a model derived from Europe, which the developing countries were, were repeating. He very much argued against that argument. Um, so some of the basic insights of the literature are that sequence matters, that minor differences in an early period can lead to wide variation in time because, as Paul Pearson writes, states are subject to increasing returns to scale. And in addition to sequence matters, world historical time matters. So states are influenced by the geopolitics and the global political economy of their era. And pathways that were available in early periods of history may not be available in later periods. I think that's very important to understand Latin American state formation in the post-World War II period where the rules of the game were very different from what they were in Europe 
from 1500 to 1900. And um, I think uh, I accept in the consensus in the literature that state formation, state capacity is not simply a an automatic reflection of level of economic development. Um, political economy matters, certain, certainly, but not, not necessarily determine everything. I take Michael Mann's injunction to use sort of organizational materialism rather than economic determinism. Geography matters as well, but is not necessarily deterministic. So it may help account for the slowness of Latin American state formation, or South American state formation more specifically. Um, but geography doesn't impede the development of state capacity. Um, and most authors in this literature look, try to look at not just the formal organization of the state, but the state in terms of its functions. So this could be <coughs> extraction, regulation, and coercion. That's Tilly's trilogy. Or it could be territory, ter ter territoriality, population, resources, which is what Ant uh, Whitehead does. Um, and I think there's another insight from the literature, which is that states uh, form systems to the extent that they interact, uh, and to the degree that their interaction significantly affects each party's fate. And so what we have in Brazil is a, is a South American system, um, especially uh, an a, a, a Argentina-Brazil axis, which influences its development. Um, so there's some other, there's some other uh, uh, findings, um, but I think most analysts of, of state formation agree that um, the capacity of states are the capacity of states is crucial for many other outcomes in society. So if you look at the literature, things like survival rates after earthquakes, human longevity quality of life of citizens, quality of political institutions. Linz and Stefan talk about no state, no democracy. So it's very consequential, even though we don't really know, you know, we don't know enough about how state capacity is formed. Um, there seems to be wide disagreement about exactly how to measure this. There is no consistent sort of set of measures. I mean, if you look at Hillel Soifer, as a book came out in 2015, he looks at uh, military participation ratios of so soldiers per capita and military spending per capita. That's to sort of try to get at coercion. Homicide rate, literacy rate, uh, the rate of immunization, road density, and the ability to organize a census. Uh, Kurtz, who has a book a little bit before Soifers, looks at tax extraction rates, percentage of children enrolled in secondary education, and um, miles of railway built, built as a proportion of total territory. Uh, as I mentioned, Whitehead is interested in territoriality, administration, and command, and he has his own set of indicators for these. So there's no, um, there's no convergence on a, on a single set of indicators that would tell you what the capacity is. Um, but I think um, there are lots of tools out there to use to apply, and I've, I've, I won't uh, dwell on that here, but in the paper I tried to pick out some of these that indicate state strength in certain areas in Brazil. Um, I think a crucial distinction that comes out of Tilly's work is between state making, uh, which he describes as attacking and checking competitors and challenges within the territory claimed by the state, and war making, which is attacking rivals outside the territory already claimed by the state. Now this distinction makes a lot of sense where borders are fixed and clearly understood. They may not make so much sense in places like Chile in the 19th century where the Chilean army was fighting the Mapuches and they were sort of extending the, the territory. So 
one of the questions that I have, and I think in the end this paper just brings up more questions than it, and then it furnishes answers. Uh, one of the questions here is, is this distinction, which in formal terms seems very clear, does it make sense in the Latin American context? And even if it does, could it be um, that state-making, which is about su basically suppressing internal challengers, so state builders at the central level putting down revolts and putting down, uh, reducing the coercive power of possible challengers, could that have the same effect, perhaps, as war-making in the European context? Um, I guess you're probably, you probably sense that my, my hunch is that, yes, that state-making can have the same effect as war-making in certain contexts, and I, and I think it has in Brazil. Um, so um, let's go to the Bellicist account, then, what, what's called in the literature the Bellicist or the Bellic account. Um, what's interesting about the European cases is that... Um, uh, so Tilly talks about the <coughs> hundreds of units that existed in 1500 in Europe um, without a single model prevailing. So you had city-states, empire-states, federations, religious organizations, all um, competing for control over territory and people. And by 1900, this had been reduced to a few dozen with more or less the same form, more or less national states, a state claiming to speak for the people. Um, so you had um, what's sort of referred to in the literature as state death. Uh, states that weren't very good at war making were gobbled up and became territory in larger states. You had this process of conglomeration. And that's the sort of the real puzzle driving um, uh, the European literature. In Tilly's phrase, uh, war made the state and the state made war. Um, and what you got with war making wasn't just, um, I have a picture here of, Okay, not just crazy, you know, people attacking, um, but you had the development of complex bureaucracies that um, were able to borrow money, but also to raise tax. And I think in, Tilly has this uh, notion that, and this is in, not in his, in his 1975 book, but his 1992 book about European state formation, that there were three main pathways in Europe. There was a coercive intensive pathway in which um, there wasn't a lot of capital, there weren't a lot of cities, and uh, large landowners mobilized a uh, dependent peasantry, and the state became strong through manpower, basically, and, and war-making uh, through the mobilization of dependent peasants. Um, and then you had capital-intensive forms uh, centered around cities where merchants and, and, and uh, commercial uh, entrepreneurs um, could raise the money to either hire mercenaries or pay for armies without a big administration. And then he says the third pathway was became the dominant one, which was a combination of both coercion and capital. And he says that, that was France and, and Britain, for example. Um, and that this coercion and uh, coercion intensive and capital intensive hybrid um, was a, was not just able to mobilize uh, armies temporarily, but on a, eventually converge on a professional armed forces um, that was funded by a stable sort of modern Bavarian bureaucracy and at the same time you had uh, in most countries in Europe large, largely disarmed civilian populations a civilianization of control over the armed forces and some separation of policing and 
war-making functions. And I think those aspects are important because South America looks very different in that respect in that same period. Um, so, uh, in, the, in, the, in this Bellic, in this Bellic or Bellicist account, um, the total wars of World War I and World War II push state formation even farther towards fuller forms of citizenship. And, and, and I'm oversimplifying drastically, but the, the basic idea was mass mobilization for war resulted in a, in a pact between citizens and states in which citizens were given um, elements of the welfare state in return, for, um, in return for military service. And that this was kind of congealing or, or coming to fruition at, at the end of World War II. Um, and Centeno takes this Bellicist account, Miguel Centeno, the sociologist from Princeton, in a two, 2002 book, looks at South America, well, Latin America, I should say. He looks at Latin America and he says, you know, this war made the state, state made war doesn't apply to this region. Because with the exception of the Paraguay War, for the Paraguayans, not necessarily for the Argentines or the Brazilians, um, there was no total war in Latin America. Um, the state didn't develop the capacity to tax in conjunction with war making. Um, so states squeeze society from society much less than, say, the British or French. They relied on indirect taxes like customs duties, and they didn't mobilize a huge percentage of the population. And I think Centeno, his explanation for this comes down to a sort of internalist argument, if you like, that um, the Latin American elites were more afraid, or at least as afraid, of their own subaltern populations than they were of neighboring, the elites of neighboring countries. So these were, you know, these were mixed race populations with huge class inequalities, and there was fear of the elites of mobilizing that population because you could trigger an insurrection from below, like Hidalgo in Mexico, say. Um, and that it was better not to do this, and there was pretty incipient nationalism in the 19th century anyway, um, and so, and so you didn't, you didn't get this mobilization. Um, so what you had in Latin America was limited war, limited military mobilization, limited taxation, and fairly weak states. So if you get to the end of Centeno's book, you would be forgiven for singing, why didn't the Latin Americans give war a chance? Because it would have made for states that were far more effective in establishing order, this missing ingredient that I was talking about in respect to Brazil. Um, I sometimes think about this, that if, if Brazil had been more bellic, I might have a bigger Brazil institute at the King's because I'd have colleagues in the war studies who would be fascinated by all of Brazil's wars. And I'm hoping still that they might invade Uruguay, that Michel Tamer will divert attention from the political scandals, invade Uruguay, and then we'll have a whole new... But I, I, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, Francis Fukuyama takes Centeno's insights and I think twists them a bit too much. He says... Um, that if you look at uh, his, his very slim chapter in his book on political development about Latin America is called Dogs That Didn't Bark. And he says, it was the infrequency of interstate war in Latin America that explains, in part, the relative weakness of states there. Uh, so he says, um, with the possible exception of Chile, uh, nationalism and patriotic fervor did not emerge in anything like the form they took in Europe. With one or two exceptions, states never achieved the capacity to dominate and their populations. Uh, so he accepts this Centeno explanation about fear of mobilization from below. 
And then he goes on, I think, to exaggerate a little bit and says, with the partial exception of Chile and Uruguay, countries in Latin America followed the paths of Greece and southern Italy and transformed 19th century patronage politics into full-blown 20th century clientelism. And, and I think that's an exaggeration with regard to Brazil. I think Brazil is, is very uneven. You have uh, a, lot, a lot of parts of the state apparatus that do not operate clientistically at all. I'm not saying that there aren't parts that do, um, but there are lots of meritocratic uh, parts of the national state. Um, Soifer, in his, for his part, says, uh, the Belicist perspective does not apply to Latin America. His book examines state formation in Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru. He says the region has never seen total war, and therefore, with the exception of Paraguay, in the Paraguay War, and states have not had to develop the mobilization extracting capacity that characterizes European states. He says Latin America's wars could more aptly be described as skirmishes rather than as major conflicts. They required few soldiers and were funded by international and domestic debt rather than by the development of taxation. Uh, it, for this reason, Latin America states are universally weaker than their European counterparts. I think this is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, and I think that I can cite David Mahdi's in my defense here, because I've seen him have an exchange with, they, with uh, Hillel Soifer about this, um, we have to keep in mind that Centeno is comparing uh, Latin American wars with the biggest wars that have ever happened you know, in human history. I mean, the German invasion of Russia is still the biggest you know, land invasion uh, ever um, in 1941, all these years afterwards. So that's a very, he's, he's setting a very high bar. Observers of the Paraguay War, and I'm including in this the diplomat Richard Burton, who was the consul in Santos, saw the Paraguay War as as destructive as the U.S. Civil War, which he also witnessed. Um, the mobilization, the, the, the extent of mobilization of Brazil, I think, um, was a big factor in um, the uh, strengthening of the military after the Paraguay War and the development within the military of a mission um, which eventually led to the Republic, the end of the monarchy, and the end of slavery. Um, so I think it's very—it's it's a mistake to dismiss the Bellicist account so much um, that you that you don't recognize um, the importance of the Paraguay War in shocking Brazilian leaders and revealing to them the, their lack of preparation, their lack of ability to mobilize, their lack of central state power, um, and that didn't generate this this. Uh, impulse, at least in the military, but, but probably also lots of allied civilian sectors, to try to centralize the state and to, and to state build. Um, so I think in this sense, I agree with Lawrence Whitehead that it came late in Brazil. And, and it's sort of paradoxical, because Brazil was, was saved from the ravages of um, the wars for independence. It had a very mild war for independence. It had a lot more continuity uh, between the administrations of the colonial period and the independence period. On the other hand, there wasn't a lot there. It was a very decentralized, very fragmented sort of state. Uh, and so I think it's, at least compared to Chile, for example, it's a case of late state development in which the, the urgency about state building comes later than it does in Chile. Um, so... Um, I, I'll, save, I'll save a point there. Um, so I think it's important to remember, too, that we, can, we exaggerate the Bellicist uh, account if we claim that Tilly and others believed that there was going to be this universal and Tilly, Tilly explicitly says in, in his 1975 work, um, 
The European state building experiences will not repeat themselves in new states. The connections of the new states to the rest of the world have changed too much. And in his 1992 book, he tried to lay out what he thought was different about the post-World War II period. And it's basically that the UN and multilateral institutions had created a re regime of juridical sovereignty where state death was almost impossible. Um, so in the Americas, you had the Rio Treaty and the OAS. State boundaries were preserved. There was no, no matter how good or how bad you were at war making as a state, you were going to survive in that system. Um, and, and also with the superpower rivalry, you had a concentration of resources going to the armed forces in Latin America from, from the US, and those militaries already with an internalist orientation. I don't think it was a, a new thing in post-World War II period, but it reinforced an internalist re orientation, and the coercive power of the armed forces was largely turned inwards. And I think that helps explain, that's not the only explanation, but it helps explain the dictatorship of 1964 to 1985 in Brazil. I think what the Tilly book doesn't help you understand is the post-Cold War period. And I think there, the critical security studies literature helps about what happens in the Cold War period. And some of these developments, I think, were beginning in the Cold War anyway. But the, 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 the spread of transnational armed actors, the lowering of the cost of communication and transportation, um, the difficulties of states in that period to establish monopolies of legitimate coercion. Um, and so I think the, the bellicist account, at least Tilly's version of it, is, some, is sometimes much more nuanced than um, the, the image of it that's presented in the works of people like Seufer and Kurtz. Um, I think Kurtz adds something, though, to the bellicist account, which leads me to sort of have this weasel term of a semi-bellicist account of the Brazilian state formation. And that is, he, he persuasively argues that um, where servile labor relations remain important, economic elites rely on local control over the official course of apparatus. Um, and they are loath to give up this control to a central system. Um, <coughs> he says... To centralize political and coercive authority where there is this kind of coercive relationship over labor, the first step in the state building process, would put elites in both economic and physical jeopardy. Um, but free labor conditions are not sufficient for elites in such contexts will only make costly investments in central institutions if they can be reasonably certain that the fruits of these investments, which can be substantial, will be shared and shared widely among the elites contributing to them materially and politically. And it's for this reason that mechanisms of power sharing and cooperation across elite factions are a second part of the initial trajectory of political development. So he argues that you need both free forms of labor and elite consensus to have this impetus for state building. And I do think that helps understand Brazil's lateness in state development because it was sort of a quintessentially unfree labor system in the 19th century. Not just slavery, but... Ten, forms of tendency where peasants were dependent on landlords and didn't have autonomy. And so the real, the real increase in state capacity that I'm talking about is simultaneous with urbanization and changes of, of labor, uh, labor relationship. So um, I'll try to finish up just talking a bit more about, about Brazil. Um, 
I think there's a debate in the literature on to what extent Brazilian state formation is shaped by its Portuguese heritage. And I think a lot of famous Brazilian analysts of this issue have put a lot of weight on the nature of the Portuguese state. So Raimundo Faro, for example. Um, uh, Claudio Veliz talks about a centralist tradition in Latin America. And I guess I'm persuaded by, by Lawrence Whitehead's work um, that um, there was there was rupture as well as well as continuity in this story, and I'm not sure I'm not sure we have that much leverage tracing everything back to the Portuguese colonial legacy. Um, I mean, I think Whitehead is persuasive by saying that um, Brazil was different; the metropolitan power was quite weak, especially in comparison if you compare the nature of the Portuguese state to the territory claimed um, in the in, in the New World by Portugal. Um, it had a dynastic form of state sovereignty until 1889. It had an emperor rather than... I've got a picture of him here. So, uh, well, that's the plantation. Oh, here's the emperor, Don Pedro uh, Sul. Just to, just to d- distract you from, from my voice. Um, uh, and so Whitehead says, after the de- Declaration of the Republic in 1889, Brazil still faced many of the problems of state formation, particularly the economic and political consequences of pursuing a liberal model of social organization that had already been, been confronted by its Hispanic neighbors a generation or more before. And so we know that there was a wide gap in the old republic from 1889 to 1930 between the liberal constitutional aspirations of the, of the state and actual practices. Um, this is the proclamation of the republic, um, perhaps somewhat idealized, I don't know. This is Republica Velha. This is the herd vote, as it was called, the sort of controlled vote by landowners who would bring their dependent workers to the polls. Um, And I think what's striking about the old republic is the decentralization of coercive power. So everyone talks about the influence of the French on the Brazilian army and the French missions to the Brazilian army. Um, but the first French mission to Brazil was actually to the Força Pública in São Paulo, um, well before the mission went to the army. It came in uh, 1906. Um, and if you compared the sort of firepower of the Forças Públicas, or the Brigadas Militares, as they're called, the Brigada Militares Rio Grande do Sul, um, they were forces to be reckoned with in comparison to the army. Um, so the old republic was oligarchical. It was ruled by tradition, very, very small suffrage, traditional elites with non-state sources of power, ownership of land, family lineage, positions of advantage in, in international trade and finance. Um, but I, I agree with both Kurtz and Whitehead that the 1930s were a crucial period where that begins to change a bit, where you, you begin to get uh, a state bureaucracy um, that uh, promotes... Uh, that concentrates power at the national center, that promotes national symbols. Um, It's a kind of state-led national identity, if you like. That if Brazil was far behind um, Chile and Uruguay at this time, it started to accelerate, beginning in the 1930s. Um, And Whitehead says, there was a remarkable process of state organization 
state reorganization, the ambitions, resources, and capabilities of virtually all the region's public authorities were incommensably greater than they had been a half century before. And he particularly identifies Mexico and Brazil, I mean, large states, states with large territory, that um, changed during this period from 1930 to the 1980s. Um, so um, with, the, with the 1930 revolution, you had interventors appointed uh, by the executive in the states. Um, the army was made more powerful, and the state militias were subordinated to the army. Um, the 1934 Constitution made the state uh, police forces reserves of the armed forces. This was reiterated in the 37 Constitution. Um, and I think if there's anyone, that's the Fourth Republic in Sao Paulo, if there's anyone who would have known about the power of the state armed forces, uh, it, it would have been Getulio Vargas, because as president, as the position was called then, in in 1928, 29, and 30 of Rio Grande do Sul, um, he engaged in a conspiracy with Minas Gerais and Paraíba in which um, these uh, state uh, forces were preparing for, and eventually there was an outbreak of conflict in 1930, fairly brief, um, but they were um, uh, preparing for uh, conflict internally. So here, this period of the 30s, I think, is a period where state making is really pivotal. And it has some of the same effects that war making has in the Tilian account of Europe, in that it drives the centralization of coercion. Um, so if you look at the uh, biography of, one of the biographies of, of, uh, of Getulio, um, it talks about how um, uh, Vargas had come to, he had grown up in a Rio Grande do Sul which was torn between fighting between the two major parties, the, the Federalista Party and the Partido Republicano. Um, this fighting was 1893 to 1895, and again in, in, in 1923. His father was a veteran of the Paraguay War. Um, if you look at some of what he was doing, he became president of the state after 30 years in power by Borja de Medeiros, which is a bit like the Porfiriato in Mexico. I mean, this guy didn't, just kept winning elections, uh, partly because he had control over the system that counted the votes. Um, and uh, so among the things that Vargas did uh, prior to assuming power in 1930 was he gave, <coughs> clandestinely gave money and forged documents to Luis Carlos Prestes so that Prestes could... Um, be a problem for the federal government, and he was hoping the presidents would endorse him in the 1930 election. That didn't happen, but he was involved in that. Um, his uh, Secretary of the Interior, Osvaldo Irania, um, bought uh, five million rounds of ammunition in 1929 from a Canadian company and had the shipment secretly sent to Montevideo so the Rio Grande could prepare for a possible invasion of federal troops. Um, supposedly, in October of 1930, um, the Minas Gerais state government was mining the um, mining the the base of bridges connecting Minas and Sao Paulo in case they would have to blow them up to deter the invasion of the Paulista forces. So we're not talking about a state at this point that had a strong overbearing dominance of coercive power. We're talking about a very decentralized system where um, rebellious states. Um, were able to uh, challenge um, 
the central authorities. And Getulio, partly because of this background, was very concerned of making sure this couldn't happen again. And um, making sure, and you see this in the ranks, you know, you can only be a colonel in the military police today because the idea is that the army is, is superior, is, is, and they are subordinate to that force. Um, so there was that readjustment. I think the other period, and I, what, I'm doing, what I'm trying to do here is set on an agenda for further research, because I think the 30s are very interesting and very important in terms of this, um, this period. <coughs> but another period is the late 1960s. So one of the things happened in, in, in the late 1960s under the military dictatorship um, that in 1969, ostensive policing was made the exclusive responsibility of the forces publicas. Now, there had been a Guardia Civil, a uniform police force modeled on the London Met that existed in the state of Sao Paulo that was really focused on, mostly on crime. Um, this, this force was abolished and um, the, the military police, not only in Sao Paulo but in other states, were brought under the control of the army and were really drafted into the, uh, the struggle against the armed left part of the political repression. And a lot of these changes in, in, in policing didn't change with the 1988 Constitution. Um, Brazil doesn't feature prominently in this literature on state formation. You have to kind of pick at it. Uh, there's much more material on Western Europe and even the United States and East Asia. And what we have in Latin America is mostly about Spanish America. So I'm trying to ask, from the, from the vantage point of today, with this evident lack of uh, ability to impose order, um, to create a rule of law that, that goes throughout the territory, through all the segments of the, of the population, through all the sort of class levels, where does that come from? And I'm assuming that that's a long-term problem, a long-term gap. Um, so I've agreed with Lawrence Whitehead that there has been this big acceleration in state formation and state capacity since 1930. It's, uh, I've suggested a semi-bellicist account where the Paraguay War was very important, and then in the 1930s, this concern with internal challenges, inter-elite challenges, and the control over coercion by elites that endangered central state authorities. I think the flip side of this coin is that there was a neglect, a relative neglect, by central state authorities, both in the 1930s and the 1960s, of control over coercion at the local level that was merely directed downward at criminal suspects, at the poor, at social movements. Armed actors or potentially armed actors who didn't threaten the national center. And that's what I think would be interesting to study about these two periods, the 30s and the late 60s. How did central state authorities, both civil and mil military, decide what was political and, what, uh, and so that needed the attention of central authorities and what was merely criminal or provincial and, and did not need to be focused on. I think what you see in the 30s is, is that trade unions, for example, moved from being a police problem, a, a problem of criminal conspiracy, to being something that the federal government was going to start regulating and recognizing. Um, I would argue that the concern with the armed left in the 60s, in the late 60s, is essentially about inter-elite violence. I know that's, an, that's a, over, maybe a, perhaps an overgeneralization, but most of the members of the armed left were part of the 
middle class, upper middle class, and it was a sort of interleague threat. Um, so I think what's interesting is what aspects of the deployment of coercion that were left locally, um, how, were the, how was the decision made not to um, address that deployment of coercion? Why wasn't that coercion caged at the central level um, in the same way um, that coercion that was seen as a threatening um, elites? What, uh, so, so to put it in the way that I, I write in the paper, it was this duality, freedom for local elites to apply coercion to their subject populations, at the same time that coercive forces that threatened the national center were subject to increasing control and subordination that helps account for this apparent lack of public order throughout the territory in Brazil today. Um, so I know I haven't gone very far, and I'm raising more questions than I'm, than I'm answering. Perhaps an appropriate way... Now it, now, it could be, also, if you consider the lateness of some of these processes that I'm talking about, it could be um, that it's only in, in recent decades in which effective citizenship has expanded um, that the power of the state at the micro level, for example, the three, over 3,000 people killed in 2014 by the police, that that micro coercion will come under the increasing scrutiny and control of civil society uh, and that it will be caged. I mean, that's, that's a sort of teleological reading, a sort of optimistic teleological reading, and it, and it could happen. Um, but I'm, I'm wary of using the historical record to make that prediction. I think, I think it's not clear that that, that will happen. Um, but I think I can, I can finish by quoting Tilly. Now, this was a book that came out 25 years ago, but it still seems relevant to me. He says um, at the end of his book, destroy the state and create Lebanon. He might have said Somalia today. Fortify it and create Korea. Until other forms displace the national state together, uh, sorry, until other forms displace the national state, neither alternative will do. The only real answer is to turn the immense power of national states away from war and towards the creation of justice, personal security, and democracy. And in some ways, I think that's the, the indignation that's sparked by the prison massacres in Brazil. Um, that's what citizens are saying, in a way. If we have a sophisticated state, we have a state that takes 35% of the GDP in tax revenue, why can't we have prisons that guarantee the personal security of everyone that's in there? Um, so Tilly ends by saying, my inquiry has not shown how to accomplish this gigantic task. It is, however, shown why the task is urgent. So thanks for listening to me.